Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If you're new, my name is Kurt, and I'm one of the pastors, and it's great to have you here today. I just want to begin with a, a brief question for you, and it's simply this. Do you ever struggle to pray? Anybody struggle to pray? Yeah, does anybody ever sometimes feel like prayer's not worth it because it doesn't actually make a difference? Now, I know most of us don't want to raise our hands on that one, but the truth is that from time to time, all of us feel like that. We've prayed about things and we haven't seen things change, and so we wonder if it's even worth it sometimes. Well, I have good news for you. This morning, as we turn to God's Word and we study it, we're going to get some lessons from Jesus on prayer and how to pray in such a way that it, our prayers actually do make a difference. So I'd like to ask you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, verse 22, where we're going to be uh, studying this morning. While you're turning in your Bibles, I need to give you a little bit of an on-ramp to what we studied last week because the passage we're studying this week and the one we studied last week are so closely linked together. Last week we saw Jesus and he cursed a fig tree and he drove money changers and animal sellers out of the temple. Do you remember that one? Some of you saw that online, others of you saw that here in the cold weather. Let me just remind you what happened. Jesus came up to a fig tree that it says was in leaf, but it wasn't yet the season for figs. And Jesus was hungry and didn't seeing fruit, he cursed it. And that was a strange one. For us. But then as we studied fig trees, we learned they have a unique a pattern to them. Actually, the early fruit comes out first even before the leaves, and then there's a latter fruit that comes out at the end of the season. And Jesus, seeing this tree in full leaf, had every right to expect the first fruit to be on it. But this particular tree was nothing but leaves and was no fruit. And Jesus cursed it because that was actually an analogy. It was an analogy explaining what the temple was like. Because the temple and God's leaders had become all show, but were producing no spiritual fruit. Because immediately after that, we, we saw that take place. Jesus went into the temple and we learned what the temple was like. It was all show, a 35-acre building complex mostly built of white marble covered in gold, looked beautiful, but almost no spiritual fruit was taking place in the temple and amongst God's people there. In fact, one example we saw was that the courtyard of the Gentiles, which at that time was the only place in the world that Gentiles could come and pray to God and seek God, the high priest had turned that into a Clay County Fair. It was a marketplace for animals and a place to exchange money. There was no place for the Gentiles to pray. And Jesus drove them out. And what this was, was Jesus forecasting by action the destruction of the temple. Because only 40 years later, the Romans would come and destroy the temple completely. Titus Vespian was the general who did that. 
So Jesus spoke about the destruction of the temple first by analogy with the fig tree that was all good-looking leaves but no fruit, and then by action, in which the temple looked good but was producing no spiritual fruit for God. And that's where we were at last week. But as we come to the very end of that section, Jesus takes the whole thing in a completely different direction. He uses this situation as an opportunity to teach his disciples and ultimately to teach us about prayer and how to pray effectively. So uh, by now you should have your place in Mark chapter 11. Stand out of reverence for God's word. I'm actually going to begin a little on-ramp. I'm going to begin in verse 20 and then read through verse 25, which will be our text this morning. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, um, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. That ends the reading of the Word of God, and you can be seated. Now let's just begin right up front by admitting that there is a very awkward sounding transition here at the beginning of this text. Uh, we have Peter uh, commenting on the fig tree that is now instantly dead and, and withered, and all of a sudden, Jesus sort of completely shifts gears, and he says, uh, have faith in God, and he goes off onto a lesson on an effective prayer, and you're going, okay, I didn't, I didn't see that one coming. I mean, how did we get there? And I admit, when I was studying at the beginning of the week, I was wrestling with how did we get from Peter in the tree to this next section. And what I did is I turned to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew has a parallel account which recounts the same thing. And Mark is typically very terse in his recollection of things. Matthew is a little bit more verbose. He gives us a little bit more details of what happened. And Matthew tells us one more line about what was said between the disciples and Jesus right at that key point, which all of a sudden begins to make things make sense. And I put that on the very top of your outline. Here's the one line that's a great help. And the disciples saw it, that's referring to the fig tree that was instantly withered, and they marveled, let me stop for a moment there. Remember, the disciples have seen numerous constructive miracles before this. They have seen Jesus heal the sick. They have seen Jesus feed thousands. But this is the first destructive miracle they have seen, where the fig tree instantly withered. And they are completely blown away. How does this happen? And that's what they say. How did the fig tree wither at once? Now their question is not how does this work biologically, like how do trees die? That's not their question. 
Their question to Jesus is, how does this kind of power work? Jesus, how do you have access to such miraculous power that by just cursing a fig tree, it instantly turns to dead and dry wood? In other words, Jesus, how do you have access to such power to do these miraculous things? That is their question. How do you bring the powers of heaven to earth? And Jesus launches into an explanation about how that happens. It's an explanation of how to pray and how to pray effectively. And he's gonna give us two points about effective prayer. Number one is that effective prayer is based on faith. And then number two, effective prayer is gonna be based on forgiveness. Those are the two things that we find in this section. So let's go ahead and explore these two as we go into the text. Number one, effective place, prayer starts with faith in God. This is where he starts out and Jesus answered them, have faith in God. What does that mean? It simply means, I think it is very basic, it means they need greater awareness of God. Faith in God is the only way for them to be able to participate in the power of God. An active, real faith in God is the only way the powers of heaven will ever be able to be brought to earth. One commentator that I read this week as I was studying this passage, he made an insightful comment that he says, faith in God, for many times for us, we think that's sort of the Sunday faith. This that we happen to think about God and have an awareness of him once a week. But in the context of the Gospel of Mark, faith in God means something very different. It means a moment-by-moment awareness of God and his involvement in our daily circumstances and in our daily life. Faith in God means that we go to him in dependence every day and all the time realizing that he responds to our prayers and he's involved in our life. This is, we pray to God before we go into an important meeting because we want God's wisdom and God's hand on that meeting. We pray to God before we go to an important lunch appointment because we want God's presence and God's wisdom in that appointment. On the way to work, instead of playing the radio as loud as we can, we take that moment of quiet, which is so hard to find in every day, and we use that moment of silence to pray to God and talk to God about our life and our day. So when he says, have faith in God, in its very basic sense, it means they need to have a constant reliance on God's presence and God's involvement in their everyday life. And then he begins to unpack a little more about what this faith in God that can uh, manifest the great power of God looks like in everyday living. He says this, an effective prayer life believes that God can actually do the impossible. And he says, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now there are two components of effective prayer in this verse. I'll take them one at a time. 
let's begin as it talks about the mountain. He says, whoever says to this mountain. So at this moment, he's not talking about a mountain generic. He actually is talking about a mountain specific. It doesn't tell us which mountain he's talking about. Commentators speculate. Some think he may be talking about the Mount of Olives, which we have seen in previous weeks, or weeks sort of overlooks Jerusalem. Other commentators think he may be talking about the Temple Mount itself, which is where he just was in the temple courtyard. When it comes to the sea, what sea would he be talking about? Uh, I've been told, though I haven't actually been to Jerusalem to verify this, but actually the, the Dead Sea is viewable from that area. So he says, whoever says to this mountain, be thrown into that sea and has faith and does not doubt, it will be done for him. But then we started to get this question. Mm. I haven't seen that happen before. I remember reading this verse when I was a kid. And at the time, I was in the Adirondack Mountains in New York as as a camper at a kid's camp. And I said, I was going to try as hard as I could to have faith that I was going to actually ask one of those mountains over there to be thrown into the sea. And I tried. It didn't work. In fact, a lot of people have tried through 2,000 years and it hasn't worked. Then I thought, well, maybe the problem is just me. Maybe I haven't had enough faith. So I grinned and furrowed my bow and tried to have more faith. And it still didn't work. So what's going on here? I mean, Jesus, did you just say something that is untrue? Jesus, did you just lie to us? Because people have tried for 2,000 years to throw mountains around, and it's not working. And as I pondered this for a while this week, and I did some more reading, I I think uh, I had a window of insight here. This statement is hyperbole. This statement is not meant to be taken literally. It is a figure of speech to describe God can do the impossible in response to our prayers. I mean, we use figures of speech just like this all the time in everyday life. Did you ever see somebody who makes a really big deal of a small issue? What do we say is a figure of speech to them? You're making a mountain out of a molehill. We don't mean that literally. We mean that figuratively. And we understand what that means. We have the same thing going on here. Jesus says, if you have faith in God, you can draw down the very powers of heaven into situations and challenges you faith in life. In fact, those powers are enough to literally do the impossible what is humanly impossible in response to our prayers. Now that theme, that God can do things that we can't do, that's been throughout the the Gospel of Mark already, hasn't it? Remember this line? Mark chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So Jesus here promises that those who have faith in God and who pray to God, God will respond. In fact, in God's response to our prayers, he can even do the impossible. Now, I haven't seen a mountain that's been thrown into the sea. 
but I have seen things that are humanly impossible done in response to prayer. Have you? I know I've used this illustration in the past, but it's the one that came to mind as I was writing this week, and it's so true. I, some of you know that my wife has an autoimmune disease, and before we moved here, uh, about three years before we moved here, that autoimmune disease was in its worst moments, and she had fingers that had begun to turn black and that were literally rotting, where the nail had actually looked like a lollipop on the end of a rotten black stick and we had been going to the doctor, and the doctor said that if this doesn't stop, we may have to consider amputation of her fingers. And uh, I remember we had been praying and seeking the Lord and asking for his favor, and we went to the doctor, and on the appointment that we are going to schedule the amputation, the doctor got out that ruler and measured. She looked at it, then she went back to her chart and looked at the numbers, measured again, and she said, you know, the flesh is beginning to regrow. And I remember looking at her, she shook her head, she goes, this is impossible. This can't happen. And over the next eight weeks, the flesh regrew on her finger. And the doctor said, there's no explanation for that. Well, that's not possible with man. But it is possible with God, isn't it? God can do the miraculous in response to our prayers. I know of other people who have been unable to conceive, but then they have conceived miraculously in response to prayers. Other people who have been without work, constantly praying, and at just the last minute, God provides work, just the right thing. So Jesus' point here is that when confronted with an overwhelming situation, don't freak out. We must go to God in faith, knowing that he is intimately involved in our lives, that he does respond to our prayers, and he can even do what is humanly impossible in response to those things. But then he adds another uh, layer in there. But when you go to him, he says, don't doubt. And by doubting, it's the idea of don't one minute believe that your prayers make no difference, and then the next minute believe your prayers make a real difference. And then the next minute you believe, ah, prayer doesn't, doesn't work at all. This vacillating back and forth. He says, if that's the way you approach God, temperamentally, uh, intermittently, not confident that he loves you and cares, you should not expect to have him respond to your prayers in any kind of way. James says the exact same thing, by the way, in James chapter one. He says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Now I believe that most of us don't doubt God's power and God's involvement in our lives. At least theoretically, we don't doubt that. But the question I would like to ask you is, Do we practically doubt that? By that I mean, how often do we actually pray? How often do we bring the challenges we face in life to God the Father in prayer, asking that he would bring down the powers of heaven to earth to be involved in our life and help us successfully face the challenges in our life? The honest truth is that most of us uh, like to do everything on our own strength, our own power, and our own wisdom. And then we wonder why at the end of the day, 
We haven't seen answers to prayer when we've never necessarily asked for answers to prayer. So, we must not doubt. Let me give you the next point. Effective prayer is confident God will respond to our requests. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and, will be, and it will be yours. If you're taking notes, I want you to circle the word ask. That is the key thing in this text. We must ask. Now, once again, this is going to sound sort of like it's a charismatic stream. Just simply ask, believe, and we will receive. But the point Jesus is making here is not that we will receive anything as much as it's saying we should ask for things. And God, being a good father, will give us things in response to that prayer. This reminds me a little bit of what Jesus said earlier to his disciples about the importance of us being able to pray and ask. Matthew chapter 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks him for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So the powers of heaven can be brought to earth when we pray to God in faith, not doubting, confident that he is involved in our everyday life and that he does want to respond in our prayers and he wants to give us good gifts. He can even do the impossible for us because he loves us. But let me just make a little transition here. God was described like a good father who knows how to give his children good gifts. When your children asked for things, did you give them everything they wanted? Absolutely not. Because many of the things they asked for were not good for them. Many of the things they asked for needed to be tempered with a parent's wisdom to know if they were good for them or not, and even the timing of when to give them to your children. God is like a father to us, isn't he? We ask for things, and he is a good father who will give us good gifts, even able to do the miraculous, but he will apply his wisdom and his timing on those answers is what it's telling us. Uh, let me show you in this next section. What about times God doesn't answer our prayers the way we hope? Because while this first section in Mark seems to talk about how God will always answer our prayers, when you widen the lens a little bit and look at the rest of Scripture, uh, why Mark does tell us that God is eager to answer our prayers, the rest of the Scriptures tell us there's other things we need to know about how and when He will answer them. For example... God promises to answer prayers to help us bring him honor 
He doesn't promise to answer prayers to give ourselves more glory. To point that out, I want to simply go to the Lord's Prayer, which is given to us by Jesus as the sample prayer that we are to follow in all of our praying. And look how the Lord's Prayer starts out. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Notice how the Lord's Prayer starts out. The focus of that prayer is that God's name would be treated as holy. That God's kingdom would grow in this world. Those are the first two things that Jesus says we should focus on in our prayer life. But what is often the first thing we focus on in our prayer life? That things would go well for us. That our kingdom would grow in this world. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray about our needs. I'm not saying we shouldn't share with God our concerns. But realize God is primarily committed to the fame and honor of his name and to the growth of his kingdom. More than he's committed to the fame and honor of our name and the growth of our kingdom. So when we pray for our increased fame and comfort, maybe God's not gonna answer that. But if we pray for God's honor and God's glory and that he would help us grow his kingdom, that's something that God is very likely to answer because that is exactly the way Jesus has taught us to pray. You see how that changes the orientation of our prayers and maybe why we haven't seen more prayers answered because the focus was on ourselves instead of on God and his kingdom. James says the exact same thing. He says this, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. God hasn't given those things to you because you're asking just for your comforts. Another point. We know God answers prayers in line with his revealed will. We don't know if he will answer prayers for his unrevealed will. First John says this, and this is the confidence that we have towards him. If we ask anything according to his will, notice that, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we have asked of him. So John says that God will answer our prayers when it is in line with his will. And the question is, well, what is his will? Here's the way I'd answer it. We know what his revealed will is in Scripture. Here's an example. Uh, say that you're tired of this cold. Say you're tired of this winter. And you're tired of cabin fever. And you find yourself at home getting a little crabby. Anybody else there? Well, and you say, okay, what should I do about this? Well, we know what God's revealed will of that is. We find it in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. It was our memory verse last week. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's revealed that we should be a thankful people in spite of our circumstances. 
So when we come to God in prayer and say, Jesus, I need your help to be thankful because this isn't necessarily pleasant or easy. Please help me in that way. Will God answer that prayer? Yes. It's his revealed will that we would be that way. But say we take it a different way. I'm tired of this winter. And I'm going to start to pray that God would give me an all-expense-paid trip to Florida where I will not return until sometime in late April. Well, he may answer that prayer, but there is nothing in Scripture that says he's guaranteed to answer that prayer in our favor. So you see how he answers prayers that are in line with what it says in the Scripture are his will because that's the direction he wants us to travel. But he may not answer prayers favorably that are not in line with his revealed will. Next point. When we ask God for our will, we must still submit to God's will. Jesus is the great example here. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Here is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before going to the cross. And here is Jesus, our Savior, saying, I'm not really looking forward to the next 72 hours, Heavenly Father. I don't really look forward to being made sin, to being crucified, to you turning your back on me, the horrors unspeakable. I'm not looking forward to it, but not what I will. But I submit to your will, Heavenly Father. Now, we find ourselves going through trials. Maybe it's the trial of something difficult in your marriage. Maybe it's the trial of being single and not yet being able to find the right mate. Maybe it's the trial that's going on in the office at work. Maybe it's a trial you have with someone even in church itself and you are asking God to take that trial away. He might, but he might not. Maybe his will is for you to endure in that trial, to bear up under that trial. Let me tell you something. If God doesn't remove adversity from us when we pray for it, he has a better plan by taking us through adversity. If God doesn't remove adversity from us when we pray for it, it's because he has a better plan to take us through adversity. Think of Jesus. He asked to be removed from the trial of the cross. But what was the better plan? But by going through the cross, he might save us and create a whole new creation. So it was a better plan to go through adversity. Another example of that may be Paul. Paul was in prison. And imagine what it was like in prison. But we find it Paul writing this in Philippians chapter 1 from prison. I want you to know, brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul is in prison. It's, it's not a happy time to be in a Roman prison. It's a horrifying time to be in a Roman prison. I can guarantee you, Paul has prayed, Jesus, get me out of here. I don't like being under this adversity. I'm not able to share the gospel freely. 
But then he starts to realize, you know, when I'm locked in prison, the whole imperial palace guard I've been able to share with Jesus. Now the gospel is spreading on the inside of the Roman leadership that it never would have happened before. And that maybe God has me in this adversity for a good reason, and he's doing something good through it. That's why he hasn't released me from it. Paul was able to see that in his life, but there are things that Paul was not able to see in his life about the good that God planned to do through that. You see, when Paul was in prison, it forced him actually to slow down a little bit. It forced him actually to write a bit, and he wrote something called the prison epistles while he was forced to sit down. Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, books that are in our Bible that may never have been written if Paul was still outside of jail, running around sharing the gospel with everybody else, When he found himself in jail, he was forced to sit and write those letters, which didn't just minister to those churches that he wrote to, but were intended by God to be part of our Bibles and minister for the rest of eternity to you and me. You see how God had a good plan and why God didn't answer his prayer to remove him from adversity? Folks, the same thing is true for you and me. We may pray to be removed from adversity, Later we may see why God doesn't answer our prayer. Later we may not see. But from the vantage point of eternity, we will always say, God, you had a good plan and a perfect one as I followed you. Next thing we must learn is this. When we ask for things, we must trust God's timing on the answers for things. The prayer of a righteous person has great power, it says, as it is working. That means that answers to prayer typically don't come from God in microwave style. We pray for things and don't expect necessarily 30 seconds later to have the answer for things. God often likes to work over time, over months, and over years. Say you're a single person. Uh, You've been praying for your spouse, and God doesn't seem to be answering your prayers. Maybe he actually is answering your prayers, and he is preparing your spouse for you right now, but if he was to bring you and your future spouse together right now, you wouldn't be a good match for one another. In fact, maybe what God is doing in answer to your prayers is maturing your spouse, growing your spouse, teaching your spouse to love Christ more, So when he does choose to bring that spouse to you months or years later, they're finally mature enough for you and prepared for you. So if he answered your prayer in a microwave fashion, it wouldn't have been the right timing after all. So we trust God's wisdom, but we also trust God's timing. So how do we pray prayers that are effective? By having faith in God. Faith that he hears us. Faith that he will respond to us. We don't doubt that he's listening. We don't doubt that he cares. We are confident that he can even do the miraculous in response to our requests. That's why we ask him about all things. But when we pray, we still yield and submit our wisdom to God's wisdom. Our timing to God's timing. And our way of answering to God's way of answering. 
because he knows what's best and we can trust him. The next thing and the last part of this, effective prayer doesn't just happen with faith, but effective prayer happens when we forgive others completely like we have been forgiven. Paul writes this, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And then uh, in the footnotes of the ESV, and other versions have this, the, a little additional verse 26. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Incidentally, uh, when you wonder about this little footnote in verse 26, let me tell you how this works. Uh, historically, we know that the, the scriptures were copied by hand hundreds of years after the originals were done. One copyist, by the way, added that verse 26 in. Uh, and so there are some copies out there that have the verse, and the Bible just wants to tell you that. Uh, by the way, we shouldn't freak out, because all that copyist did was copy from memory what it says in Matthew <laughs> into Mark. So it's not like Jesus didn't say that. He just happened to copy what he remembered from Matthew into Mark, which is typically shorter. Now, here's what he's saying, in essence. Unforgiveness destroys the effectiveness of our prayers. Holding a grudge against others destroys the effectiveness of our prayers. And if we persist in unforgiveness, it doesn't just destroy the effectiveness of our prayers. It can destroy the very life of our faith. That's a strong warning. Now, why is that so important? Here, the reason is this. Forgiveness that we extend to other people is linked to the gospel itself. We have been completely forgiven by Jesus. We need to be completely forgiving of other people like Jesus. Did you hear that? We have been completely forgiven by Jesus. We have to be completely forgiving of others like Jesus. Unforgiveness, holding a grudge, and being a Christian, those are contradictions in terms. Christians cannot hold grudges. Christians cannot be unforgiving. And to illustrate this, let me just go over to Matthew 18, where Jesus told a parable and a story. It says, then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often will, how, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Peter says, how often should I be forgiving? Incidentally, in that day, Rabbi said the maximum number was three. <laughs> Peter thought he was being generous by saying seven and Jesus says, no, try 77, or as some translations would say, 70 times 7. In other words, Christians forgive other people every time because God has forgiven them of their sin every time. And then what we have here is, um, let me put it this way before we go on here. Here's Jesus' point. Counting strikes against someone is not forgiving. Counting strikes against someone is only delayed revenge. 
Counting strikes against someone is not forgiving. Counting strikes against someone is only delaying the revenge. Jesus gives us this story. Therefore the kingdom of God may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payments to be made. So the servant fell on his knees and implored him, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. The key to what we need to understand here is the math involved. Uh, 10,000 talents, it's a lot of money. A talent is roughly the equivalent of 6,000 denarii. A denarii is a day's wage for a laborer. This guy owes the king 10,000 talents. There is absolutely no way this guy will be able to repay this. You do the math, uh, they say he owes the king somewhere between 2.5 and 6 billion dollars. Be patient with me. There's no way you can get out of this. Six billion dollar debt. And the king is so gracious and so merciful. He sees the hopelessness of the situation and he forgives this servant all six billion dollars. And then this happens. And when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him and saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Now, a hundred denarii is roughly the hundred days equivalent of minimum wage. We're talking around $6,000 at the low end. So the servant who had just been forgiven a $6 billion debt through his fellow servant who owed him a $6,000 debt in prison. Is there something wrong with this picture? Those who have been forgiven much should be forgiving to others much. And this is how the story ends. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the Heart. Jesus says resentment towards others, unforgiveness towards others, us holding a, a grudge towards others. Not only does it destroy the effectiveness of our prayer life, but it can actually go so far as to destroy the very existence of our spiritual life. 
if it's persisted in. Forgiveness, you know what that means? It means not bringing up the past when you are in an argument with someone. And when you ever get with those arguments with your spouse where all of a sudden you want to say, well, it's just like you did last month, and it's just like you did last year. When you start doing that, it's evidence you hadn't forgiven your spouse. You were counting, just delaying revenge on your spouse. Jesus says that's not possible. Christians who have been forgiven much, who have begun, been forgiven the $6 billion debt that we have to God, we have to be willing to forgive the $6,000 debt that others have towards us. Paul says it this way, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as in God Christ forgave you. Let me give you the applications and the actions. Here they are this morning. Number one, effective prayer happens when we pray with confidence that God hears and responds. That's praying with faith. Know that God hears us, he loves us, and he promises to respond to us. He can even do the impossible in response to our prayers. But when we pray, we still must submit to God's will, God's wisdom, and timing. And number two, effective prayer happens when we are forgiving of others, like God has been forgiving of us. Anytime when we refuse to forgive, and we hold a grudge, and we bring up history of the past, when we're disagreeing with someone that we said we've forgiven, that means we haven't forgiven at all. Here's the actions I want you to do this week. Number one, forgive the people that have hurt you deeply. I don't know if that's your spouse, a child, if that's someone at work or even someone at church. We must forgive those who have hurt us deeply. It's the only way to have an effective prayer life at all. And number two, pray. This week, begin praying about everything that you face in life with confidence that God hears and he's eager to respond according to his will and wisdom and timing. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for these instructions on how we can pray effective prayers that actually make a difference. I pray that this week we would be people who pray with faith and confidence without doubt that you are listening and you will respond when we simply would ask. And I pray that this week, if you have brought to mind the mind of anyone a grudge or an attitude of unforgiveness that we are continuing to carry towards someone, I ask that this week we would forgive others with the same graciousness and fullness that you have forgiven us. Just as you don't continually bring up the past when you have forgiven us of our sin, may we not continually bring up the past when we forgive others of their sin. As we have been a forgiven people, may we be forgiving to others and have effective prayers that make a difference. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.